Good morning, FCBC Walnut family and friends. Happy 4th of July weekend. Thank you for joining us in this online platform for corporate worship. I have a couple of announcements to highlight from our digital bulletin, and that will lead us in prayer to prepare our hearts to hear God's word. The first announcement is that the next two Wednesdays during prayer meeting, we're going to be able to hear from member candidates that have expressed desire to join our church family. They have gone through all of the classes, the interviews, the questions, and now they just want the opportunity to be able to share with us their testimonies, and it is a privilege for us to hear from them. We're reminded that church is family, and so when they join our church as members, they're also joining our spiritual family. So I encourage you to come and be present at our Wednesday night prayer meetings to support them, to know them, and to encourage them. Secondly, the opening task force has been working hard to prepare us to return to 1555 Fairway Drive. This coming Saturday, we're going to be hosting a training session at 10 a.m. in the MAC for any of you that would like to learn more, that would like to be better equipped, that would like to be able to have a better idea of what we're going to do and how you can help in this regathering process. And so if you have any questions, email Maureen at maureen at fcbcwallen.org. We would love to have you there. As I reflect on Independence Day, I can't help but be grateful. Even now, I look back and recognize that my story is an immigrant story. One in which we did not know anything about America or Christianity before we moved here. But once we landed in this country and settled down and settled in, I was able to hear the gospel preached in a local church and lived out. I was able to receive an education. I was able to connect and grow. And I was able to be shaped by a culture in this country that does have so much to offer the world. It is through this country that I was able to experience the joy of being a husband, being a father, and now able to pursue the calling as a pastor. In all of these ways, I'm grateful because we know that God has ordained for every person to be in the precise time and place that he wanted them to be in for his glory. So I'm thankful for this country and I'm forever indebted to the United States of America and God's hand for making me the person I am today. That being said, even in the preamble of the Constitution, the writers said this, We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish the Constitution for the United States of America. That as they said this, that we recognize that this is an ongoing process. Why? Because true independence, perfect independence can only be given by God. Paul says in Galatians chapter 5 verse 1 that for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. That we are people that are chained to sin from birth. We cannot not sin until we put our faith and trust in Christ. But if you have repented and put your faith in Jesus, that he has set you free from this yoke of slavery that binds you in this life and also keeps you from God in the next. And so true freedom is in Jesus, but our society, our culture, our history reflects that it is being built by sinners just like you and I, and it is still a work 
and progress to become a more perfect union. And so there's much that we can consider that needs to be changed, for which then we can grieve and lament, but also we are called to be a part of the solution in our words and our actions, to preach the gospel, but also to demonstrate what justice looks like, to demonstrate what love looks like, to demonstrate what kindness looks like. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1-4, through 4, Paul says this, First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. This is our prayer for today on Independence Day weekend, but it should be our prayer every day that we are reminded that true liberty comes from first being set free from sin and to be set free to follow Christ. And then once we are, we're called to be salt and light in the community that we live in, starting with our homes, then branching out into our workplaces, into our lives, our neighbors, and locally and globally, even online. So let me pray for us on this July 4th weekend in the way that Paul urged Timothy to consider in his passage. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, God, for this country and for the freedoms that it has afforded us. We thank you, Lord, that this is a country in which your gospel can be preached, where churches can gather, and where people, Lord, are able to talk and share and live in a way that is pleasing to you, even during times like the pandemic that we are now and civil unrest that we are experiencing, even if we're not able to physically see one another as a church scattered, Lord, the church is open and the church is moving and the gospel is going forth and your people are set free to live for you. We give you praise for that. And I particularly want to thank you, Lord, that it is through the path of coming into this country that I came to know Jesus. And Lord, for those of us that share that similar testimony, we pray, Father, that our hearts will be filled with gratitude for that simple reality. Lord, then we want to pray, Lord, for those who are in authority over us in government. We pray, Father, for President Trump and Vice President Pence, their staff, their cabinet, their advisors. We pray, Father, for Congress, both houses. We pray, Father, for our governors. We pray, Lord, for all federal, state, and local leaders and employees. God, that you would lead them and provide for them, that you would set them free, free in the power of the Holy Spirit to pursue your Son. And we pray, Father, also, God, that you would give them wisdom and discernment in order to lead well, in order to communicate to all of us, in order to make wise decisions, and in order to represent our country. We pray, Father, Lord, for all of us, God, to pursue peaceful living and to pursue reconciliation in our homes, in our families, in our communities, in our workplaces. And we ask, God, that you would help us to embody what it means to be set free unto you, to love, to be set free unto you, to demonstrate what it means to be a child of God. And we pray, Lord, that in our words and in our actions, that people will know that we are your disciples. Finally, we want to pray, Lord, for our church as we continue to process this reopening 
in light of the news that constantly is being given to us. We pray, Lord, that you would lead us. We pray, Lord, that you would use the task force to prepare us. And we pray, Lord, that we would prepare our homes and our hearts to return in your perfect timing. God, that it won't just be coming back to a physical building, but it will be reuniting as a spiritual family, seeing each other face to face again, one phase at a time, one stage at a time. And we ask God that you would be the one that we seek as we come to prepare and as we come to worship. We thank you so much, God, for this weekend. And Lord, even though it is different than most, Lord, may it be a strong memory for us. May it make an impact as we reflect back going forward to be able to know how you've been good and gracious and kind to us, especially through this time. We thank you, Lord. Prepare us, Lord, for the preaching of your word as we continue in the book of Ezra. In Christ's mighty name I pray. Amen. Good morning, FCBC Walnut. Welcome once again to our online worship service. And today we're going to pick up where we left off last week. I've entitled our message today, God's providence through secular kings. God's providence through secular kings. Today we're going to continue to see how God, in this period of Israel's history, in Ezra chapter 6, he uses two kings, King Cyrus and King Darius, to provide religious freedom, if you will, for Israel and for the Jews who have come back to rebuild the temple. So before we get started today, I do want to give a little bit of this of a disclaimer and give a few thank yous. Because of the topic and the nature of this passage, when we consider application of what Darius allows for the Israelites to do in Ezra chapter 6, I am going to give an application talking about religious freedom. So just giving a heads up for those of you who are, who are more sensitive to, to political statements being made in the pulpit. This is more talking about an application of religious freedom. And then when we're talking about an application of the Jewish temple, how does the Jewish temple apply to you and I today? And I know that uh, there's been a lot of talk recently among Christians about systemic and structural issues in society. So I want to give you a heads up that I will talk about how the Holy Spirit fills us as believers and how when the Lord puts us into different spheres of society, how we make a difference. And I want to thank I want to thank some of our Indonesian brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you so much for talking with me, for sharing your experience of what you've experienced back home uh, before coming here and helping me understand from a sober and a real way what is systemic and what is not. I also want to thank some of uh, my black American pastor friends, just a couple of you who have also helped me to think through these issues as well. So with that, we're going to get started and jump right in. Point number one, what we see in, in, in Ezra chapter 6, verses 1 to 5, is point number one, God's providence through Cyrus. This is the first king that we see in our passage, and we've talked about Cyrus a few times now, but God's providence through Cyrus. So by way of review, last week we saw in Ezra chapter 5 how God sent his prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to call God's people to return to the work of rebuilding the temple. However, as they began to dig in and as they began to work, they were they faced interrogation. They were interrupted. The governor, the local governor named Tetanai, uh, and some of his officials began to question the Israelites. Who gave you the permission? 
Who gave you the permit, if you will, to construct this temple building? Who gave you the blessing to acquire these materials? Why are your stones this big? And, and who allowed you to do this? To which the Israelites who were building replied, and they referred back to Cyrus's original decree. And so what Tetanai did, the governor said, okay, well, we're going to send a letter to King Darius, the current king of the Persian Empire, and we're really going to see if Cyrus, the former king, the older king, who is no longer king, if he really gave you this decree. So that's where we pick up. So if you have God's word, turn with me to Ezra chapter 6, and I just want to read to you verses 1 to 5 to set us up for point number 1. Ezra chapter 6 verse 1 says this, Then Darius the king made a decree. A search was made in Babylonia, in the house of the archives where the documents were stored, and in Ekbatana, the citadel that is in the province of Media. A scroll was found on which this was written, a record. In the first year of Cyrus the king, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt, the place where the sacrifices were offered. Let its foundations be retained. Its height shall be 60 cubits and its breadth 60 cubits. And so they found the records and the records are confirming not only the permission to rebuild, but, but why these stones are so big. Now you look at verses 4 and 5 and it says, With three layers of great stones, and one layer of timber. Let the costs be paid from the royal treasury. So how are you guys paying for this? Well, Cyrus gave us instructions of how it would be paid for. Verse 5, And also let the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that is in Jerusalem, be brought to Babylon to be restored and, and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its place you shall put them in the house of God. So, Darius is now the king of Persia. Darius is in his second year of his reign. And what we need to know is that for Darius, politically, there was turmoil all across the empire. Just two years in, and he's got, for example, warfare and, and skirmishes and a rebellion arising in Egypt. And so the last thing that Tetanai wants to do is to further agitate the king. So Tetanai, or Tetanai, some people pronounce his, names that, his name that way, he has no idea what Darius feels or thinks. So that's why he says, okay, I don't know if, if Darius knows about Cyrus's decree. I don't know what, what Darius is feeling right now. Things are kind of sensitive. Hmm, I, better, I better check. I better send a very polite letter, and I better find out if Darius is supportive of the Jews rebuilding the temple. And, and in Ezra chapter 6, verse 1, Darius responds, and what I want us to consider is that Darius does not have to. Okay, Darius does not have to. Darius is the king of Persia. He does not have to worry about this little group in Jerusalem of refugees that have come back. Right? He doesn't have to worry about them. He doesn't have to go and search for Cyrus's decree. He could have just said, look, I searched the archives 
in the palace or wherever the capital was, and it's not here. Why would he send out a mission to search all across the empire just to find these documents? Imagine that. Now, I know this doesn't happen today. We have archives. We have technology. We have records. But imagine if a former president of the United States signed a piece of legislation and somehow it got lost. I don't know how it would get lost. And so then years later, a new president arises and that president wants to search for that legislation and he can't find that anywhere in the archives of Washington, D.C. So where does he look? He looks everywhere. And it turns out, I don't know, at Camp David or at the presidential retreat where it was signed, or maybe it's in California. I mean, but that's what's happening here. Why put out the search for a document when Darius could say, well, I can't find it, so let's just leave things alone. And for you and I who are God-believing Bible readers, we understand that this is nothing short of God's providence at play here. God caused Cyrus to give the decree originally, and God is causing Darius to not ignore the letter and the request of the Jewish returnees. And so God's hand is at play here. God's providence is at play. And this is what we mean by God's providence through Cyrus. And then in verse 2, when they find Cyrus's decree, this city that we read about is 300 miles northeast of Babylon. 300 miles, that's far. Ekbatana. So, again, this shows us God's providence. And sure enough, sure enough, we see God's blessing. And so it is so fascinating that when you look at verse 5 in more detail, and you look at verse 5 again, is that not only are the Jews permitted to build and rebuild, but both Cyrus, and you're going to see Darius, they care that worship is done accurately according to the Old Testament. Now, that is so weird because Cyrus, nowhere do we read about Cyrus becoming a proselyte Jew or a God-fearer or a, or a worshiper of Yahweh. So why would Cyrus care that Israel has all of its proper furniture, all of its religious elements, and, and, and that Israel could worship Yahweh rightly? And you're going to see... As we go on, the Darius also wants the Jews to have the blessing to worship the way that the Old Testament prescribes for them to worship. Again, this is nothing short of God's divine providence working, God's hand at play in human history, God working through secular leaders and secular kings to ensure that he receives the glory and worship that is due to him. Now, this is not always the case. Again, like I mentioned in our introduction, I'll make a comment about religious freedom. I'll make a quick one now and a more detailed one later, is that nowhere in the New Testament is religious freedom promised to Christianity, to Christians, to Christians. In fact, what we read about in the New Testament and in the pages of, of history, of church history, is that more often than not, God allowed the early church to be persecuted. For example, the early Christians were persecuted by the Roman emperor Nero. But there are certain places in Scripture where God allows for a certain level of religious freedom 
and religious protection for his people protected by a secular government. So we begin to see that at times God wants his work to be done. When God wants his work to be done, he's going to set up the structures, he's going to set up the permission, he's going to provide the grace and the blessing, and he's going to allow that so that his work can take place. So keep that in mind because we're going to come back to that point in our application, but this leads us to point number two. Point number two is the first point was God's providence through Cyrus, the secular king. The second point, point number two, is God's providence through Darius. Darius, another secular king. Darius, the Persian king. And we see this in verses 6 to 12. But Darius, before we read verse 6, Darius tells the governor, Tetanai, or Tetanai, and his officials to stay away. So what you see here is government, secular government protection of the religious freedom of the Jews to practice their religion and to rebuild according to the Bible. Okay, so, so Darius tells Tetanai, stay away, leave the Jews al- alone, do not hinder the building process. Instead, and here, this is God's grace and gift, provide above and beyond what the Jews need for this rebuilding project. Now, keep in mind, there needs to be human responsibility, right? Just because Darius says, okay, Jews, or okay, Jewish uh, returnees, you have the blessing and the permission to build, and here are the materials that you need, here's the finance that you need, the Israelites still have to get up. They still have to dig in, they still have to take responsibility and do the work, and they need to trust God and respond to His word, right? And so here we see the intersection of God's sovereign providence on one hand and human responsibility, the response of the Jewish builders on the other hand. And together, God's work is done. So how does God's work get done throughout history? God's work has always been, sometimes through His common grace and His special grace, working through, allowing God's people to do the work, but God's people need to step up and do His work. Now, with that insight, I want to read to you verses 6 to 7. Now, in verse 6 of Ezra, chapter 6, it says, Now, therefore, Tetanai, governor of the province beyond the river, that's the state, that is the province, Shethar, Boznai, and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away, leave them alone. Let the work on the house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild the house of God on its site. So Darius is giving his protection to the Jews. He is backing up and doubling down on Cyrus's decree. But then in verses 8 and on, you see something very special. It's that Darius does not have to, but he goes above and beyond Cyrus. He adds additional orders for the financing of this temple above and beyond the royal treasury, and he adds additional protection and punishment for anyone who would try to hinder the Jews from doing their work. I want you to consider this as a blank check. I don't think the government would ever give any church a blank check to build a building or to do mission work. But what we see here is a blank check. In verse in verse 8, you're going to see the words, whatever is needed. Oh, how we wish the church today would have this kind of blessing 
to have financial providence of what for whatever we need from a governing authority. But I want you to see the case here, nonetheless. Look with me now at verse 8. Verse 8 to 10, it says, Moreover, Cyrus says, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full, in full, and without delay. So immediately, this is not sitting at home and waiting for a check to come in the mail. I want it to be paid in full, without delay, from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. Now stop there. I, this is this is funny. Okay, I, I like to read scripture. It comes alive, and sometimes you know I, I read a story like this, and there's humor. I, I, it may not humor you, but there's humor because Darius is not saying, "Hey, we're going to pay for it from our Persian." Uh, royal treasury now, right? He's saying, Darius is saying, Tetanai, agitator, instigator, you're going to pay for it. The taxpayer's money from your state. So that's like if the president said, okay, state of California, you're going to pay for the building projects of all the churches in California, right? So, so, but here he's saying, from your province, from this state called Beyond the River, the tributes, the taxes that come in, you, Tetanai, are going to pay for it. And you're going to make sure that the Jews have everything that they need, that they're going to be paid in full and without delay, otherwise there will be punishment. Look at verse 9. And whatever is needed, blank check, blank check, whatever they need, whatever is needed, bulls, rams, Sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven. Wheat, salt, wine, oil as the priests at Jerusalem require. Let that be given to them day by day. So every day? Yeah, day by day. Without fail. That they may offer pleasing sacrifices to God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Again, this blows my mind. This is a secular king. This is not a worshiper of God saying, not only will you pay for the building, you will pay for their offering. Really? Um, imagine that. Imagine the governor or the government of the United States paying our offering. But this is what he's saying. He's saying, saying whatever these Jews need for all of these animals, all of these animals, and, and all of the wheat, salt, wine, oil, you pay for it, Tetanai. The government's going to pay for it. Day by day without fail. And then, again, it's saying, why? Why does Darius say this? It's so that the people could worship God in a way that's pleasing to God? Look at that once again. Verse 10. That they may offer pleasing sacrifices to God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his son. Since when does a secular king care that Yahweh receives the proper God-honoring worship? Well, Darius cares because of God's providence. And then he adds this, and Darius wants the Jews to pray for the life of the king and his sons. So whether Darius believed in the power of, the, of prayer or not, we don't know, but he's asking for prayer. And you and I, we ought to be praying for our leaders, for our governing leaders. So as alluded to earlier, 
by all accounts, Darius was not a worshiper of Yahweh. Now, I want to tell you what the scholars say, because, you know, we always want to give you everything, right, that, that you need to know. Some scholars look at this historically, and these are Christian scholars, and, and they say that there's political reasons for why Darius wants to honor Cyrus's decree. He's only two years in. There's turmoil all over his empire, and people respected Cyrus. Cyrus was like the, 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 the first Persian king that, that you know, launched the Persian Empire that took the empire from Nebuchadnezzar, from Babylon. So people were thinking, okay, if he honors Cyrus's decree, then that's going to look good, public relations-wise. That's going to look good on Darius. It's a good look. And his ratings, his approval ratings will go up, if you will. And he needed the stability in that time. So that's what some scholars will say. Other scholars will say that along the same line, lines, Darius wanted to keep every region at peace. So he's going to do everything that he can to please the Jews and to make sure that they're as happy as possible to avoid any uprising. Right? So, so, there, so, so there are political reasons that scholars point out for Darius holding down the fort and blessing the Jews. Now, I don't know for certain. Uh, I, I don't know for certain if these political uh, motivations are true or not. But what we do know is that God is the one who's working. What we know is that really God is at reigning. When God reigns, play on words, when God reigns, R-E-I-G-N-S, when he reigns, his blessings pour. And, and that's what's happening here. He is reigning. Darius is not really in control of God's people. God is in control of his people. And when he's in control of his people, he causes Darius to pour blessing after blessing after blessing on his people in a way where you and I just don't think, how does this make sense? Because we don't have the same experience. And here's where we get to some application. As I read this this week, I said, huh, as Christ followers, how does this apply to us? How does this apply to us? God is providentially working all things for the good of his people. But how does this apply to us? And, and I go back to this, that one application that we get here, right in the middle of our sermon, is that religious freedom is never promised in the New Testament. But when God blesses us with it, we must not take his common grace for granted. We must capitalize on opportunities to advance the gospel. That means that so as long as we have the blessing of religious freedom here in the United States, we need to use it to our advantage. We need to use the legal systems. We need to use our 5013C nonprofit tax status as long as we can. We need to be giving to the Lord. We need to be sharing the gospel freely. We need to be advancing ministries in our communities while the government allows us to. I mean, there are times where we begin to see religious freedom being tightened up. And so we need, we cannot take this for granted. Not every nation has a government that allows for Jesus' people to be the church. But when God blesses his people with a nation that allows for religious freedom, we have to see that, God, you want us to do something. The reason why God blessed the Jews with temporary religious freedom, because this would be taken away later, but the reason why they have it is God wants them to build the temple because the temple is ultimately going to point to Jesus Christ. 
So what is the work that God would have you and I to do? Right? God is providing for us what we need. When we do have religious freedom, we also need to be praying and not taking things for granted. We need to be praying for persecuted Christians. We need to be thinking through how we must vote. So we can't just sit at home and not vote. We must vote because we have the freedom to vote. We must be educated. We must teach others to think with a Christ-centered worldview. We must teach our children to think through societal issues with a biblical and Christ-centered worldview. We can't take anything for granted because religious freedom was never promised and at any time, God can take it away from us. Here in this passage, Darius has given the Jews protection and resources to build and practice Judaism according to the Old Testament. What are the resources that you and I have? What are some of the resources? This is where we can begin to think. What are some of the resources that our government here in the United States allows for us that certain governments in places like East Asia, you see it's completely opposite. You don't see religious freedom. You see churches being asked to dissolve. You see churches being persecuted, uh, pastors being thrown in prison. Christianity cannot operate freely. You see in places throughout Africa, you read about where Christians go to church and they're being gunned down, they're being killed, and they're, they're being imprisoned, they're being extorted, their buildings being burned. That is very different. So God, in the New Testament, does not promise religious freedom across the board. And imagine living in one of those nations. And imagine how they covet the freedom that you and I have. And so we must pray, and we must see our religious freedom as a providential gift from God. Now, we're not building a temple, but what are we building? We're building a people. So how can we take advantage of the time that we have to build the gospel into the hearts of our people, our children, in every generation? And so that's a short application. Now let's get back into the text. And I want you to see in verses 11 to 12, not only religious freedom given to the Jews, but protection. They are given protection by Darius. And again, I do want you to see the humor in Scripture and Maybe for some of you it's not humorous, but for me, I, I love reading the Word of God. It comes alive, and, and, and I see that every movie that's good steals from the Bible. But look at verses 11 and 12, and look at what Darius says. He doesn't have to go this far. Okay, really, he does not have to go this far. He's not a Christian. He's not a worshiper of Yahweh. He's a secular king. But he says this, verse 11, Also, I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, so that means that any king that comes after him that alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house, and he shall be impaled on it, and his house shall be made a dunghill. Stop there. So if you're going to mess, so secular king says, if you're going to mess with the house of God, then your house is going to be used as an instrument of execution upon you. And a beam shall be pulled out of your house, and you shall be impaled by it, and your house will be made a dunghill, a, a wasteland. I mean, he doesn't have to go this far, but he does. And he does this so that no one would dare stop God's people from doing God's work. I wish we had these types of protections. Could you imagine that? 
if we're building a building, we're trying to do something for God, we're trying to use the building to bless the community, and if the government said, anybody who messes with FCBC Wallet, anybody who messes with these people, anybody messes with God's people trying to do discipleship or share the gospel, that this is going to happen to you. Of course, that's not going to happen because the gospel and the New Testament talks about loving our enemies and loving our neighbor and, and, and reaching out to those who persecute us. Uh, but this is the Old Testament. And this is fun, right? So look at verse 12. It says, May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree. Let it be done with all diligence. So he says, let this be done. So of course we know that after the Persian Empire falls, that eventually, you know, the temple is destroyed, right? Uh, later on, uh, AD 70, the second temple is destroyed by the Romans. And so the temple does not fall. But as long as this decree stood and the Persian Empire stood, you knew that there was a protection for the temple and God's people. Now, a little bit of ancient Near Eastern background is that it was custom to pronounce curses on anyone who altered an official document. So this is a, a common thing. It was custom to pronounce a curse on anyone who would threaten to alter an official document. And if anyone alters an edict, uh, they will face punishment, right? And so, in a sense, uh, nobody could mess with God. And it was we know that it is God who sent his prophets to call the Jews to rise up and resume building those who obeyed God's word experienced his providential hand working through the most unlikely situations and the most unlikely people. And that's what we see in this passage. The big idea is simply this, that God works all things for the good of those who obey his word as it points to Christ. God works all things for the good of those who obey his word as it points to Christ. That's what we see. Six. Ezra 5, the prophets Haggai and Zechariah come, rebuke the people, call them to repentance, call them to return. The people rise up in faith. At that point, without full protection, they rise up. They are persecuted. They need to continue to, to trust in God. As they continue to trust in God, their faith is fortified. While they are exercising their human responsibility to trust in God, God is working through Darius. And in the end, under the protection of Darius, the temple is complete. You see this complete movement from the word of God working in people, calling them to repent, God's people exercising faith. Then as their faith is being exercised, they are being protected and the project is complete. This is God's providence, completely God's providence. So application, I have three applications for you. How does the completion of the Jewish temple in Ezra, how does this apply to us as New Testament Christians? First application is that the temple was meant to point towards Christ dwelling in us and through the Spirit. The temple was meant to point towards Christ dwelling in us and through the Spirit. The purpose of the temple ultimately points towards the gospel in that the temple was the place where God's people came to have their sins atoned for and receive their forgiveness. Now for you and I, under the New Covenant in the New Testament, instead of going to the temple, we go to Christ to have our sins atoned for and forgiven. Instead of going through the priest at the temple, we go through Christ, our great high priest. Instead of offering animal sacrifices, 
We have the perfect Lamb of God who offered one sacrifice once and for all for our sins. And we worship Christ rather than at the temple. And we trust in the sacrifice of Christ rather than the sacrificial system. This has been repeated throughout our series. So that's application number one, is that the reason why God allowed the temple to be completed was it meant to point towards Christ, who fulfills the New Testament function of the temple. Second is that the temple conveys to us that holiness matters. And if God truly lives in us, then we must be growing in holiness. Let me explain this. That if you have Christ, then the Holy Spirit dwells in you like the presence of God dwells in the temple. In fact, the Apostle Paul makes this very point in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is that Paul is rebuking the Corinthians for sexual immorality. So sexual immorality has an inward source, but an outward deportment. There's inward sin that leads to physical, outward sin. And what Paul says is that he uses the illustration of a temple. And in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 to 20, Paul says, Or do you not know that your body, your physical body, is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Again, Paul is arguing that our physical bodies are like a temple. And within the temple, just like in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God dwelt, symbolically representing God's presence among His people. In the New Testament, if our bodies are symbolically like a temple, then the Holy Spirit dwells within us. And what does that mean? Well, in order for God's, God's presence to dwell in the Old Testament, sacrifices need to be made. Sin needed to be atoned for. There could not be sin, or otherwise God could not dwell. People needed to be declared holy through these animal sacrifices, receive forgiveness, and God would dwell because the sacrifices are burning. You see what I'm saying? As long as sin is atoned for and being atoned for through animal sacrifice, God's presence could be with his people. But if sin is not dealt with, a, a holy and perfect God could not dwell among sinful and wretched people. So, that begs the question, well, you and I have sin. Even as believers in Jesus Christ, we still struggle with sinful attitudes and sinful thoughts, yet Christ is sanctifying us. So how is it possible that the presence of the Holy Spirit dwells with us when we are imperfect and still sinful? So just as the sacrifices continue to be made in the Old Testament, there is one sacrifice that was made, and that sacrifice continues to bring glory to God. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection is like an everlasting burnt offering that's just there. And God is constantly and eternally pleased. And his wrath is satisfied towards us. And it is because of the gospel of Jesus Christ that the presence of God could continually dwell in you. But the presence of God cannot dwell with sin, right? So that means that if you truly have the Holy Spirit, and if I truly have the Holy Spirit, then holiness needs to be cultivated. That growth needs to be happening. That we need to be continuing to experience holiness. Which means, beloved, and I say this in love, that if we're not at all experiencing growth and holiness, then we need to question 
whether the presence of God is in us, which means we need to question whether or not we are genuinely converted. And I know that COVID-19 has really challenged the consumer Christian mindset here in America. And so this is a time for us to really do some heart searching and not questioning anybody's security in Christ, but asking us to remember if our bodies are a temple, then we must be holy. Our hearts must be holy. And holiness is a process. It's not an overnight thing. It is a process where Christ continues to sanctify us and to make us holy because Christ can only dwell in us when our hearts are acceptable for him. And that leads us to our third and final application, one that I gave you a disclaimer and alluded to, is that I want you to think of the temple in the Old Testament. I want to think of of the temple concept and motif in the New Testament and what it means for us. Application number three is that spirit-filled believers bring the presence of God now into every sphere of society. Spirit-filled believers bring the presence of God into every sphere of society. Now hear what I'm saying. I am saying that if the first two applications are true, if the temple is meant to point towards Christ and Christ dwelling in us, and if if number two, if Christ dwelling in us means that we are being made holy, and if the presence of God lives in us, then ideally everywhere in this world where genuine believers take your or my station in life, the presence of God ought to be enacted. And in that sense, whatever institution, whatever organization, whatever community, whatever school, whatever structure where sin exists, enter the believer and you have salt and light. So let me explain this. Today's world needs the temple in a different sense. The world needs spirit of society. As long as you have individual sinners, individual sinners are going in to be in every sphere of society. And when you consider history, history is a long time. And because there's individual sinners over the course of history, when you look at the structures and the systems and the institutions and organizations of this world, you see that obviously there's sin because there's sinners. And as long as there's sinners, there's going to be sin. But God does something about this. He sends individual believers to take our station in this world, bringing the presence of God's shalom into societal structures, organizations, communities. Then the shalom of God, what the temple was meant to convey, the shalom of God is conveyed to a world that so desperately needs a Savior. You know, like I mentioned, there's been a lot of discussion among Christians regarding systemic issues in society. And again, I want to thank those of you who have helped me to think through these things. I want to thank, I want to thank some of our, once again, Indonesian church members for sharing a bit of your experience with me personally, helping me think through what is and isn't systemic, depending on context. I want to thank a small handful, a couple of my black American pastor's friends, pastor friends, for sharing with me their experience as a pastor, sharing with me their experience as a black man, sharing with me their experience of shepherding church members who are black Americans and helping me think through 
things in a sober and in a biblical and evangelical way. The reality is there's a lot of evil in this world. And like I said, the way that God deals with the evil in this world is not simply by throwing the gospel at subjective institutions and structures and systems because these are just documents or or organizations on paper, right? These are just buildings or places, schools. It is not the institutions in themselves, it's the people. And so if there are people, then you have, for example, in the institution of the church, which is a good organization and a good system, you have pastors and religious leaders that have brought horrible sins into the institution of the church. And we all read and know about that. So in the same sense, when you consider the systems and structures of society, no doubt there will be sin and there will be individual sinners. And God's response to sin is the gospel, but more than the gospel, it is the message of Jesus sending you and me as spirit-filled people into every sphere of society so that we can impact these structures and systems wherever God calls us. And so again, I want to go back to the fact that here in America, we have some religious freedom, or a lot of religious freedom. And I want to challenge all of you as Christians and Christ followers, me included, is that we take our Christian faith, our Christian worldview, our thinking, our spirit-filled love, our spirit-filled discernment, our hearts, our feelings, our emotions, we take that into the places where we work, the places where we study, the places where we play, the places where we live. And by that, that is God's answer for how the church sends out individuals into every structure of society. And by living for Christ, we become salt and light. And that is God's temple. Remember that before this physical temple idea came, that in the Garden of Eden, before there was sin, the whole world was God's temple. Everything was supposed to be orchestrating worship towards God. But when sin entered, that was broken. And so the temple is but a miniature of a imperfect Eden where God's presence would dwell. But now God dwells in you and I. And wherever there are believers in this world, we represent the corporate temple and presence of God. My prayer is that you would take seriously the gospel, that you would consider your heart this morning, and that we would seriously take our mission to this world with a sobering reality. Because this world is, like I said, is desperate for a Savior. Beloved, will you pray with me? Father, we look to the scriptures today, and when we look at a passage like Ezra and the rebuilding of the temple, it seems very foreign to us as New Testament Christians. I pray, Lord, that through this passage that you have, that you would continue to show us what it means to apply the idea of being your temple as new covenant Christians in a world that so desperately needs it. Father, help us to have conversations with people. Help us to love people. Help us to build relationships. Help us to be peacemakers and agents of reconciliation. Help us to enact shalom and peace. Help us to enact the presence of your Son and Spirit in this world. Father, I want to pray for all of our church members. I pray, Lord, that we would have among our membership genuine conversions and genuine believers. I pray for holiness in our hearts that you would continue to cultivate in our hearts, holiness. Father, I want to pray for any non-Christian who's watching or listening 
that you would touch them, that you would speak to them, and that you would save them. And that they too would be part of your missional witness and be brought in to be part of your global symbolic temple known as your kingdom through your people. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We love you more than you know. Beloved, have a blessed Sunday.